our study in the book of James this morning. Last week, we, we rounded into chapter five, the last chapter of the book. And this morning, we, um, well, as I said on the notes, we, we reached the, what I believe to be the beginning of the end of the book of James. Now, what do I mean by that? Throughout the book of James, he's been talking about the varying trials and the varying tests that we, we have for our authentic faith as we live in a world that is badly broken. And uh, as we endure that, now there's a set of sort of closing affirmations he makes. We're not done with the book of James as of this morning, but I believe we have reached the beginning of the end. And I'm gonna entitle my message this morning, Until the Coming of the Lord. Because the verse seven, our paragraph leads with an encouragement in that direction. Before I, before I get to actually reading it, let me defend my thesis that this is the beginning of the end. This therefore in verse seven, be patient therefore. If you've been around much preaching or even much uh, English teaching, you've been taught something when you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's it What's it there for? That's exactly right, because therefore always points backward. Therefore always says, given everything that I've, or given what I've been saying up to this point, here's some conclusions. I, uh, I, I push forward my left foot, and therefore I fall to it when I, when I take a step. And therefore, therefore, it's a cause and effect sort of thing. The therefore in verse seven probably has a broader scope than the immediately previous paragraph. The immediate previous paragraph, if you recall from Pastor Mark's teaching last Sunday, deals with the wicked rich <clears throat> and actually addresses the wicked rich in terms of how they are harming others and taking advantage of others. The most recent sentence is, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore. Doesn't seem to fit just the immediate context. There's a hard break there. And remember, the, the chapter and verse breaks in our Bible are not a part of the text of God's word. They are an addressing system that came much later, and I'm glad, but I think, I think there's a, a sort of almost a chapter level break that ought to happen before verse seven. And I think the Therefore, of verse seven, leans back into essentially the entire body of truth in the book of James. I believe it bookends chapter one, verse two, which says, count it all joy. If you go back to the very beginning of the book of James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I believe that one, two, and five, seven bracket all that comes between. This paragraph from five, five, seven to verse five, to chapter, chapter five, verse seven, to chapter five, verse 12, there it is, reads as follows. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example, by the way, that's, I'm interrupting myself. That's three times in those first few sentences that he has made reference to the fact that we're, we're living toward the coming of the Lord Jesus. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate, compassionate and merciful. But above all my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As we reach this beginning of the end of James, we're offered some practical counsel for godly living in these difficult times. I've taken for my outline this morning five points, because as you look at verses seven through 12, there are five imperatives. There are five imperative verbs. Now, if you, if you, again, remember your English class, you know an imperative is the verb is saying, go do something. When, uh, when your spouse says to you, please go take out the garbage, that, that verb take there is in the imperative. Please, you go, go do that. And there are five imperatives in this paragraph. And as is my custom, I attempted a very artful alliteration of these five imperatives. That is, to come up with synonyms that all start with the same letter because I have a bent wiring in my brain that wants to do that. And sometimes I'm successful. This time I could not be, so I went with rhyming. Came up with some very cute and extraordinarily obscure words, but I still couldn't make it work. So I want to note for the record, as over against my reputation, I do sometimes show a small amount of restraint. Sometimes. What I've done this time is just take the five imperatives as they are, and we'll look at them one at a time. The first one is right there in the very first verse that leads with it, be patient. Be patient. The word there has, has the idea of, of don't burn quickly, burn very, very slowly, if at all. But the meaning is be patient. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Don't be one who flies off the handle. Don't be one who descends into pers persistent lack of contentment. Don't be one who is living in an, in an agitated way, but be patient as we <clears throat> progress through our assigned years in history, looking forward to the coming of Jesus. There are various theories, overall theories of history as history is taught. The one that I was taught way back in college was the Hegelian dialectic that history is moving along in a thesis 
And here comes an antithesis, and they have it out for a bit, and what goes forward from that is a synthesis that becomes the new thesis, and here, and the cycle just repeats itself in a series of, and uh, that was Hegel's way of seeing history. Some have taught that history is cyclical, that you just watch the events of history and everything old becomes new again, and we just go round and round and round. Some have taught that there's no point in looking for a pattern in history because history is a series of random splats of events and maybe you can connect the dots between them sometimes and maybe you can't. Well, all of those views are at least terribly deficient because history is linear. History had a beginning. It is moving down a linear path toward a deliberate, determined future, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You sometimes wonder what the world is coming to. You needn't wonder. The world is coming to the moment when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> and while we live during our chapter of that waiting, there's an admonition here to be patient. Now he uses the illustration of the patience of a farmer. A couple of things about that. First, letter A on your outline, you know the harvest time is coming. If you're a farmer, you know that there is an intentionality between the beginning of the season and the harvest time at the end. We as believers know that, that we are, we are living in the Great Commission era. We are living in the time when this gospel of the kingdom is to be preached in all the world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come, according to Matthew 24, 14. We are, we are aware that there is coming a harvest. But just like the farmer, letter B, we, we wait, but we also work in the field. Between that early rain of the planting season and that late rain of the harvest season, the farmer does not merely sit on the porch and watch the field grow. There's work to be done in the field. There's the work of cultivation and, and irrigation and all the other Asians that I have no idea about because I've never farmed. What I remember about farming, my grandfather Stedman always had a little half acre garden uh, uh, for his for his uh, for his kitchen, sort of a kitchen garden there, down behind the house at my grandmother and grandfather's house. And most of what I remember about farming is pulling weeds. My grandfather thought that it was important to the moral and character development of of, of young boys growing into men that we spend a lot of time pulling weeds, and we wait for the crop to come. Look, I know. Patience doesn't come easily to some of you. And you want to, to see things happening and you want to get to what's next. But the farmer can't get to the corn crop any quicker by going up to the corn stalk and pulling on the edge of it where eventually an ear of corn is going to appear. At the end of the day, the farmer has to trust that the Lord of the harvest will bring about his harvest in his time. And you and I know that the Lord will bring about the end of the age in his time. And meanwhile, we wait patiently. The second admonition, the second imperative, is establish your hearts. Verse eight, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
establish your hearts. That word establish has to do with having secure footing, being, being well-footed with your feet underneath you. Get, get sound footing for your heart. In, in sort of modern expressive terms, we call that a worldview. Your, your, your worldview, get, get your thinking and feeling established. Get some things locked down. We talk a lot about worldview. I don't know how often we slow down and define the term. Not actually describe a worldview, but tell you in simple terms, what is a worldview? We use the term a lot. I don't know that we've adequately defined it, so let me take my shot. This is not an academic definition, but I believe it's a pretty serviceable working definition. What is a worldview? Your worldview is that which, that, or my worldview is that which I know or believe to be true. Now, let me stop right there and differentiate between what I know to be true and what I believe to be true. What I know to be true is that which I have, I have empirically absorbed with my own senses, my own experience, my own eyes, my own ears. I've seen this platform without carpet on it where I'm standing right now. And I know it to be cast concrete several feet thick. There's, a, there's several feet of concrete underneath my feet. I know, unlike other places that I might walk, there's absolutely no sense of give. It's not like I'm out on a, a, a dock or a deck somewhere where I can do this and feel it give, or like a, on a suspension bridge. Know what's underneath me? I believe you could park a vehicle up here. In fact, I believe at time past we, we have. I don't remember the detail. This thing is solid and I know it to be true. On the other hand, I've never been to Australia. Yet I believe that there is a Sydney Opera House. That big, unusual looking building that sits on the Sydney Harbor. It's a fascinating looking building. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And if you've been to Australia and toured it, you know what I merely believe. I, I, I accept as authentic the evidence of all the pictures and the video that I have seen and the descriptions that I have seen of the Sydney Opera House. I therefore believe that it exists. Certain things that I know and certain things that I believe. How many of y'all got to church today over the Midpoint Bridge? You drove in today from Cape Coral over the Midpoint. Where are the midpoint bridges? All right, keep your hand up, keep your hand up if you are not a structural engineer. All right, you don't know that bridge will work today, right? Because one of these days it's gonna, and you, okay, you can put it down now. You, you, um, you didn't inspect it. The last time you pumped your gas, you did not know that it was gasoline coming out of that nozzle. Unless you're a chemical engineer and you travel around with a test kit. It could have been Clorox bleach. Well, your smeller probably would have given that away. But So we have a combination of things that we know and things that we believe that function together all the time. Now let me pick up from the comma. With that worldview, with that combination of things that you know to be true and believe to be true, with that you evaluate and you do it all the time new information that claims to be true. 
something I read in a news story, something I, I watch on television, something that, that somebody says to me. I evaluate the truthfulness of new stuff as either it fits smoothly into my worldview or it bounces off my worldview and falls to the floor. And we're all doing it all the time. That's why I've said in the notes, yep, you've got one. You may not like thinking about it in philosophical terms, but your neurological operating system is hardwired. You have a worldview. And what is, what is important for you as a believer is to make certain that at the nucleus of your worldview, at its center, you're holding the truth of the word of God, which you know or believe to be true because you are a follower of Christ. So when someone tells you that human beings descended evolutionarily from some other sort of primate, that should bounce off your worldview and fall to the floor with a thud. Because the Bible is true and your worldview enforces that truth. When someone tries to tell you that there are 30 or 40 human genders and all your life you're playing a rolling multiple choice game choosing the gender you want to be this week, you remember that the living God created us male and female from the very beginning. And that multi-gender stuff falls to the floor dead at your feet because of your worldview. When someone tries to tell you that in order for a system to be just, it guarantees that everybody reaches the finish line at the same time regardless of their speed or where they started. Equal outcomes as justice is, is weird and unbiblical. And if you have a biblical worldview, you ain't buying that foolishness. A biblical worldview tells you that from the moment of conception, that little baby in its mother's womb is a human being made in the image of God whose life is to be protected. That's, that's worldview. God bless you. That's worldview. And so if somebody says something on Discovery Channel or your favorite 24-hour news network or some bestseller, you should have bad ideas bouncing off your worldview all the time because we live in a world of bad ideas. And if you're not doing that, you're not obeying this imperative. You don't have an established heart. Establish your heart. And that's, notice he doesn't just say establish your mind. Yes, letter A on your outline, this speaks to belief. Of course this speaks to belief. But it also, letter B on your outline, speaks to behavior. Because your convictional beliefs are what navigates what you say, what you do, where you align yourself, establish your hearts. Number three, do not grumble. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble. Last week, Pastor Mark shared the illustration talking about 
about patience and, and, and future and planning. He shared the illustration of being stuck on a plane that's already pulled back from the gate. And the, and the pilot comes on the speaker and tells you it's gonna be a bit before the plane's going to move. Let's go back to that illustration for a moment. Let's talk about grumbling. You know, five or six minutes into that wait, I'm probably doing just fine. I tend to travel with my Kindle and I always have my, you know, couple of hundred favorite books are loaded on my Kindle and my Kindle and my books. I'm, I'm, I'm capable of, you, you tell me when we're going, I'm just fine with my, with my Kindle. And then the air conditioner on the plane stops working. Or at least it stops working to my liking. Then a few minutes later, the little kiddo in the seat behind me decides to do this thing with his feet on the back of my chair. And the temptation to grumble is starting to grow. And then some jerk three or four rows behind me with a voice like mine decides to use it to describe in detail just how unhappy he is. And now the plane is loud with that. And then, to make things worse, the cabin attendant comes down the row and tells me that there is no Coke Zero aboard the aircraft. <laughs> We've just passed from inconvenience to calamity. And I am prone to grumble. Now look at what I've described. A claustrophobic setting with people I didn't choose, some of whom behave in ways that bug me and I don't know when we're gonna take off. My goodness, that sounds like the church. <laughs> A sometimes claustrophobic setting full of people I didn't choose, some of whom behave in ways, let's face it, and I don't know when we're done. Of course we have to deal with the temptation to grumble in that setting. The, the one another commandments of the New Testament, there are about a hundred of them, and they're overwhelmingly, they're addressed to the church. <clears throat> Most of them occur in the context of, a, of an epistle written to a church. So the vast majority of the one another's deal with how we deal with one another. Us, here, now. And they cluster into three major topics. The first is unity. Unity Doesn't, does not mean that we all always agree on everything. But it means that we're moving together to the same ends. It means that we are in step with one another, even as we might have the occasional difference in point of view. Unity is important. Second cluster of the one another commands has to deal with our love for one another. That we are to live in community with a self-sacrificial, self unconditional commitment to one another's well-being. That your well-being does matter to me. And my well-being does matter to you. And love is prepared to pay the price to see to it that the other's well-being is protected. And then, humility. Humility, the, the, the steadfast belief, heartfelt belief that other people matter more than I do. A community where everybody in the community, instead of obsessing over their own self-perceived bubble of preference and privilege, 
is instead focused on the other and the others. And if you combine that unity and that love and that humility, grumbling won't take. It won't catch. It won't be a part of the atmosphere as we're crowded into the life of the body of Christ, interconnected with one another, waiting for our Lord's appearing. Don't grumble. Number four imperative is kind of in the middle of the sentence in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. Now by take the prophets, he means pay attention to, look to the example of these Old Testament prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. By the way, we cannot obey that command, look to the example of the Old Testament prophets, if we're neglecting the study of the Old Testament. There are some who have said that the New Testament church should camp pretty exclusively in the New Testament. And while I agree that there are, because of, because of the doctrine of progressive revelation, there are, there are a lot of topics on which God's last word to us is in the New Testament just because of the chronology of how God has revealed himself. But you don't cut out the Old Testament. You miss a lot about how God has dealt with his people. You miss a lot about the character of God. You miss a lot about the, the holiness of God and the glory of the coming Savior. A Savior to whom they look forward to whom we look back, but the same Jesus is Jesus in both the Old and New Testaments. And you can't obey this command if you're not keeping yourself, making yourself familiar with the Old Testament prophets who showed us their example by suffering. Letter A on your outline. You look to the suffering as an example of suffering, verse 10. <clears throat> you look to them for their letter B, their speaking. Even as they, they often lived in difficult times and seasons, often as they personally endured difficult treatment by others, they spoke in the name of the Lord, the end of verse 10. Their suffering plus their speaking. We should be constant in our giving testimony to the glory of God and the authenticity of the gospel. Well, you don't understand, Pastor Russell, I'm not having a great day. Oh, you've not read enough of the Old Testament and the circumstances out of which the prophets continued to declare the word of God in circumstances a lot tougher than most you've ever faced. Not only the suffering and the speaking, but the steadfastness. This is a slightly different word for patience and is used otherwise in this passage. This word is used only here in this passage and it means endurance, not mere patience. Mere patience is I'm in the doctor's waiting room and it's 30 minutes past the appointment and I need to sit here in my comfy chair with my Kindle for another few minutes. That's mere endurance is the whole time they're doing that, some kid is beating on me with a Nerf sword. <laughs> or worse. Endurance is heightened patience in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. That's the word here for steadfastness. Suffering plus speaking plus steadfastness. He tells us what the result of that is. It's seeing the purpose of the Lord. They saw the Lord's purpose because they, they suffered, they spoke, and they hung in there. 
And they saw the Lord's purpose, compassion and mercy, according to verse 11. This is where we get to, in our day, continue to speak the truth of the gospel even as circumstances around us. And it might be as big as cultural change that we're not real thrilled about or as small as a personal trial that only you know about. But through that trial, we need to continue to live for and speak out on behalf of Jesus Christ and his gospel. If you're here this morning and you don't know that gospel or haven't accepted that gospel. It's simply this. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of mankind is universally trapped in condemnation well-earned because all of us have sinned. Doesn't mean that you are as bad a person as you could possibly be. That's not what it means at all. It just means that you have failed to live to the utter perfection that is the absolute and inflexible standard of the God who created you. The Bible also teaches that God loved the world so much that he sent his son into it. That whoever believes in him would not die in eternal judgment because of the sin, but would uh, contrastingly receive his gift of eternal life, which is there for all who will repent and exercise faith. Turn away from your sin, turn toward Jesus, cry out to him in faith, and he will save you from the consequences of your sin. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard that. Wow, would we love to talk with you about it in more detail, and certainly there'll be any number of us down front toward the end of the service and after the service that would love to talk with you about that. But most of you have heard that message. My question for you is, have you shared it lately? You say, well, I know that message. I got that. This part's not for me. Well, if you're that familiar with it, surely you're sharing it with somebody else. If you've got enough familiarity with that message that you can track along in your head as I share it with others, that's got to mean you're prepared to share it with somebody out there, right? Because see, as we, as we suffer in steadfastness, we speak. And as we speak, we see the compassionate and merciful purpose of the Lord, which in our era is the salvation of souls by means of the gospel. Take the prophets. And finally, number five, verse 12, do not swear. Do not swear. <clears throat> now he's not talking about, let me go ahead and carve this off. He's not talking about formal oath-taking or formal contracting in a formal setting. He's not talking about courtroom oaths or oaths of office. He is calling back to the, uh, his older half-brother's encouragement in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says exactly the same thing. James is just summarizing here the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. At this point in James's letter, toward the end, it would be customary in a Jewish letter written in this day to end the letter with some big flowery sequence of oaths. I swear on the basis of this, 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 and this that what I've written is true. And instead of having James give us flowery oaths to close his letter, he closes instead with avoid flowery oaths. 
They don't help because in the custom of his day, the expectation was without a bunch of oath language, what you said was not to be taken seriously. Now we don't have exact equivalents in English today. We have a couple. First, people who think they have to use foul language to be taken seriously. Not just I'm angry, but I'm thising and thatting angry. I'm verbing angry. I'm bad word angry. Oh, well now you are to be taken seriously. Please. Or, or, or my favorite, you're in a conversation with somebody and they say in the conversation, well, let me be honest with you. Does that mean up to that point you were lying? Because I, I need to check off in my notes because this is the point where the person started to be honest with me. That's awkward. What the word of God is saying here is, at least four things about your speech. By the way, first, let me ask this. Is how we speak important to James and thus important to Jesus? James has mentioned speech. You can't read two paragraphs of the book of James without coming to some encouragement about speech. It has been the theme woven all the way through the book. How we use words is very, very important to James. It's very, therefore, important to our Lord, important to us. And this admonition regarding speech at least can be applied four ways. First, keep your speech simple. Just simple. You want to know how to, uh, if, 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 you're, if you're involved in sales, and especially if you're involved in a multi-level marketing, you're, I, I'm going to have to apologize to you later for what I'm about to give people. If you're not involved in any of that and you don't want to be, when they approach you with the opening pitch, as in, don't you want to earn more money and help people? Just say, no. Anything you add after that, they've got a script for it. You walk into a store where there are energetic and engaged salespeople. May I help you today? No. See how effective that is? Just keep it simple. Ladies, if you don't want to go out with him, don't give him a two-paragraph excuse when he says, hey, you want to go out Saturday night? No. Keep it simple. Let her be. Keep it clear. Don't you love it when somebody talks for 45 minutes and you have no idea what they said? Don't you think about me. Do not think about me. <laughs> Nobody should walk away from a conversation with you wondering what you meant to say. The implication is here in the simplicity of your speech. Let there be clarity in your speech. Let her see, of course, keep it honest. Keep it honest. And letter D, keep it Christ-honoring. Remember, the heart of your Christ-honoring speech is your zeal to bring glory to God by telling people about Jesus. But in all your speech, intentionally, keep it Christ honoring. Don't just fill the air by multiplying words. James has already warned us that those who fill the air by multiplying words probably do it with evil intent. So I'm going to stop doing it now.